0: The yeshiva.net. Thank you so much everyone for for joining us. Um, so wonderful and special to have you all, and um, it is really a special honor to uh, to have Rabbi Jacobson with us. Rabbi Jacobson is, um, is known throughout the world as uh, one of the most dynamic and profound Jewish thinkers and speakers, touching the lives of tens of thousands of people all around the world with his writings, with his speeches, with his uh, words of Torah um, in a, such a profound and soulful way with a tremendous spiritual and intellectual depth. And um, also, I'm very grateful to, to Rabbi Jacobson for, for the time that he's spending with us as a community and uh, with me personally because uh, we, we, we go back many years. In fact, Rabbi Jacobson was uh, in, in our earliest Sinai in Derbe, um, the first and, uh, one, he helped, the
1: first one, yeah. I think.
0: The very first one, that's right, with Rabbi Lau. That's right. That's it. Right, right at the beginning, the very first one, all of those years ago. And if I recall, there was the it was the time of the volcanic ash, I think in in, in Europe at the time, and the flight from Cape Town was delayed. Yes, yes. Um, so you got into Johannesburg, and then um, the 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 words of inspiration and wisdom just pour out of pour out of you. So it was it was so amazing, and uh, you've been such an imp- such a wonderful friend of the South African Jewish community. So I'm so grateful to you for your friendship to me personally, but to our community as a whole, and uh, and for everything you're doing for the Jewish people. It's a, an absolute inspiration, and thank you so much for for your time today. So appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Chief Rabbi, and thank you for the privilege and the invitation and the honor to be with you and the entire amazing South African community, which has turned out in recent years... Under your leadership, to be the one of the most innovative communities throughout the year, I always tell my New York friends: Imagine if the Shabbos project would have come from a rabbi in New York, <laughs> couldn't even it couldn't
0: even reach embryo state. <laughs> so that's that's why the, the the South African Jewish community is the perfect place to give birth to new ideas because exactly. it's such a wonderful exactly. Jewish community with such beautiful Jews. Who receive things with such enthusiasm, so gets birthed here and then can can go out to the, the world. Unity
1: and the unity is the key.
0: Yes, I think unity is so important that that I, because sometimes people think unity is just a nice thing to have. You know, it's like a, a it's it's something which is which is good to have. But uh, but but I think it's it's much more profound than just something nice, isn't it? It's 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 more profound than that.
1: It's, it's I think, one of the most essential ingredients of our survival and continuous vibrancy. It's not a luxury. For us, it's a matter of life and death.
0: I think maybe that's, let's, let's start exploring that because, you know, today is really about a conversation. So it, in the sense we were saying beforehand, we're not preparing what we're going to say. We're just going to see where the conversation takes us. And I think unity is a good place to start that conversation and, and that discussion because it's really about understanding what that means and why, why is it so important. And I think part of it, of course, is the sense of mutual respect and dignity and that, you know, if we are relating to, to God, then, um, then, then there's really the sense of, well, we're all his children. So if if we really respect him as a parent, then we must respect our brothers and sisters. And that is something which is, uh, you know, which is so important. But uh, on, on the other hand, it is, uh, I think there's, there's something else because it, it's crucial for survival. And, and maybe like that, that dimension of, uh, of why it's so crucial for survival is something which is, which is so important. Because you can say, well, it's a nice moral value, but why, why is it crucial for, for survival? You know That, that interested me in what, in what you said. Well, I think the facts always speak louder than
1: anything else. If you look through our Jewish history, almost every one of our greatest catastrophes was preceded by the disintegration of Jewish cohesion and harmony and unity. It goes back all the way to the beginning. Every one of our exiles, the first exile of Jacob to Egypt, happens... Because of the strife of the brothers. The brothers can't get along. That's the first exile. And even that, they threw Joseph into the pit. And Reuven would have taken him out. But he went and he focused on his own religious perfection, fasting for his sins. And therefore he wasn't there when they sold him. In other words, he let his brother languish in the pit as he was concerned with his own spiritual perfection, which is an incredible teaching of our sages. It means that sometimes the strife is not coming necessarily from brutish, egocentric, narcissistic people. Sometimes there are very deep religious and spiritual motivations. If you look at the first commonwealth, it was the splitting of the kingdom between Rechavim and Yeravim, the northern kingdom and the the southern kingdom, that ultimately created this weakness in the cohesion of the Jewish people. It led to the exile of ten tribes and their assimilation, lost till this very day. We don't know what happened to most of the Jewish people. Unfortunately, even though every two years we hear a theory about another tribe in Africa that's probably one of the ten tribes, or Japan or Afghanistan, but they basically disappeared after a 100 years from the Jewish scene. And if you look at the second temple, the Talmud clearly says there were great Jews, but the hatred was so profound, the famous commentary of the Nitziv on this, and as a result, the second temple was destroyed. So if you look at, and if you look throughout Jewish history, you will see that uh, the, the harm that we did to each other by the lack of trust sometimes is the worst because it feeds all anti-Semites, Feed from that. It's like they're parasites. They feed off Jews. Even today, some of the worst anti-Israeli vet, Israel venom and sentiments are fed by Jews. Take the socialist revolution, the communists. You had the, many Jews don't know this history. The Efsektia was the Jewish section of the communist party under Stalin. It's hard to say this. Stalin was one of the worst people who ever lived. But the way Judaism was destroyed in the former Soviet Union over 10 years, from 1919 to 1929, was not destroyed the previous 300 years in Russia. How? Through the Jewish communists. The Yavsektsia. Ultimately Stalin killed them all because they weren't loyal enough. They were still the dirty Jews who were, you know, nationalists and he couldn't trust them. So they were all, they gave their souls to Russia, to the communism, and they were all killed for it. But for those 10 years... The, ma- the amount of destruction they did in terms of wiping out Yiddishkeit from Russia was, was in- incredible. So this is not, of course, to, uh, God forbid, blame all the anti-Semitism on the Jewish people. That's ridiculous. And I try not to be a self-hating Jew. But I think it does identify that for us, unity is not a luxury. It's really essential to our survival. And it's hard. It's not an easy thing. And I'll be honest with you. For religious Jews, it's sometimes even harder because they're very idealistic. And if it's, I want to serve God my way and I see you serving God a different way, I stop trusting you. And as a result of that, it becomes very, very difficult. And the key, one of the key lessons of Jewish history, I think, Chief Rabbi, to say it very briefly is, we don't have to agree with each other, but we have to be here for each other. We have to listen to each other. We have to communicate to each other. We have to trust each other and support each other through thick and thin, even if we have arguments justified or unjustified.
0: Yes, I think it's so important because it's about the practicalities of holding a people together, but it's also about the fact that the enterprise of Amnisol of the Jewish people is an enterprise which is a communal national one. In other words, when, when God speaks to us with His Torah, it doesn 't only speak to us as individuals in our private capacity, speaking to us as a nation, as a people, and right. that 's why unity is so important. There could also be another dimension to that, and that is that through the unity we, we, we are exposed to, um, to different perspectives, and we can also le- we, we learn from one another and learn, learn from you know, how the, the, that conversation and what emerges from that conversation. Which becomes, you know, so so important. I came across an interesting book recently called Rebel Ideas, and it's um, by Matthew Syed, and he he's really talking about this idea that that in in a team, when you've got a team of people working on something, you want to have different perspectives brought to bear on it, and and that of course is the beauty of the of the Gemara. You know, when when learning Talmud, it's the back and forth. They don't stop fighting. They don't stop fighting.
1: <laughs> they don't stop arguing. I always I tell my students if you want to learn how to fight with your spouse or with your siblings, learn Gemara and you'll see how to do it. They did not stop arguing, but at the end of the argument, they were in love just like before the argument. You know there is an there is an extraordinary an extraordinary halacha in in Gemara and tractate Sanhedrin and Rambam Hilchased and it's very fascinating and I should say in the times of the Enlightenment some people used this to mock the Talmud. And that is Sanhedrin shapashu kulam The entire Sanhedrin, the entire Supreme Court of the Jewish people, opened up with a guilty verdict on a defendant. He was exonerated. And this is one of the most strangest laws. If seventy people voted guilty and one voted innocent, he was not exonerated. Obviously, he was tried according to the law and order, according to the verdict. If everybody said guilty, they let him go. It's 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 one of the strangest laws. So the Medrash Shmuel in Pirkei Avas says an incredible answer, incredible explanation. He says, the Rambam phrases the Gemara and says, Sanhedrin Sheposchukulam Lechayva. They opened up with a verdict of guilt, which was absolutely unanimous. You know what the problem was? The problem was there was no debate. There was no second opinion. He says, you could never ever reach a verdict without hearing counter views, perspectives and arguments.
0: Yeah, amazing. And I think, of course, there is a, there is a framework uh, within which we operate. You know, we have the, the Rambam's uh, principles of faith, so there's a, there's a framework with, within, with, within which the debate takes place uh, that, that are kind of the... the, the out- there, has
1: to be, there has to be axioms, if not the debate. It's like a husband and a wife. You can have a lot of arguments, but if there's no axiom of certain values you're committed to... For example, if the welfare of the children is not an axiomatic value then you can't survive. Debates can survive only if there's
0: an underlying connection
1: that will not be broken through the debate.
0: And I think that's on the intellectual side, but on the side of love and care even if a person is outside ac- accepting those axioms. We love and care for every Jew. doesn't matter where they come from and what their background is and what they believe in. There is that love and devotion. Uh, we're talking here about the intellectual debate, about what, what, is, what are the, the broad pillars. So this whole framing of what unity is, that's why I'm, I'm pleased to have this opening discussion with you because you know, exploring the idea of Jewish unity is, is something which is, uh, which is so important.
1: Yeah, and I think also also from a very deep Jewish perspective, I mean, imagine somebody comes over to me and says, you know, Rabbi Jacobson, I love you. I'm in love with you. I'd do anything for you. I, I, I have so much affection towards you. But your children, I hate their guts. I will not look their way. I will never be there for them. It's going to be very hard for me to maintain a relationship with them. We come to shul or our homes, and we scream out, Love Hashem with all your heart. And then I meet a Jew, It's one of Hashem's children. And I say, oh, Hashem, you I love, but this guy, I'm not looking his way. I can't get along with him. It doesn't work that way. If you really love me, you love my children. Because you know how much I love my children. So if you really love Hashem, the more Jewish you are, The more holy you are, the more divine you are, it immediately translates in love of every Jew. Because every Jew is Hashem's singular child.
0: I think that's also, it's a good um, segue into part of the discussion that I wanted to have with you today, and that is in preparation for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, because we, we in Elul, uh, Rosh Hashanah is less than two weeks away, um, this is the time to prepare, and, and I suppose a starting place has got to be to think about unity, but you know, I, I think it's an important thing to think about unity not as a noun, but as a verb. Like, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to make that real? And then that becomes part of our whole journey of being Adam Lechavero, the sense of how do we treat one another? Because a crucial part, uh, you know, um, as our mitzvahs uh, are divided into these two categories of our relationship with Hashem and our relationship with with our fellow human being and our fellow Jew, and so we, we, we need to find a way of working on both of those two relationships in preparation for Rosh Hashanah, not just exclusively on the one or the other. I, I, in a certain sense, you know, there's a, a certain, an interesting idea from, I read in from the writings of uh, Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, where he, he says that, the, according to the Midrash, that the Ten Commandments were all said but in one breath, so he says that the message behind that is the unity of it, that the first half is about our relationship with God, the first five commandments. The second is about our relationship with our fellow person. And the fact that it was said in one breath by Hashem says this, you, you can't separate out the two. Some, and, and you can see on both sides, sometimes people say, well, okay, well, it's just good enough to be a, good, a nice person. And then you have other people say, well, it's, it's good enough just to be devout and religious. So we, we need to find that integration of the two.
1: It's true. There's a fascinating Midrash that uh, the reason the Ten Commandments were given on two tablets, not on one, it's not like God had a shortage of sapphire or granite in heaven, but the reason is because he wanted us to read the Ten Commandments both vertically and horizontally. So it's five and five, so we can read the first five and the next five. We can also read number one and then number six, number two, number seven, number three, number eight, number four, number nine, number five, and ten. And it would be interesting, why would that be so important? But if the Medrash points out, because number one is Anochi, I am your God. Anochi Hashem Number six is, thou shall not murder. Lo Sirtzach. And the two have to be read literally as one line. Because we see in Jewish, in history, in human history, there have been two major philosophies that attempted to divorce number one from number six. One is the European Enlightenment. The European Enlightenment basically argued in the 18th century, 17th century, 18th century, you don't need I am the Lord your God to protect people from thou shall not murder. If we would just allow the individual reason to prosper, if we would allow science and natural human being to develop in full glory... None of us will murder. Who wants to murder? you got to be a Meshuganah to murder. you got to be a primitive, barbaric, moronic idiot, I- idiot to murder. Who wants to murder? We all want a beautiful world. Get rid of God. We don't need God. God is dead. We will behave in the most civil fashion. That was one major philosophy that has captured the hearts of millions and millions of intelligent and sophisticated people, including Jews. And yet, from the very country where the Enlightenment sprung up and where this ethos was preached so powerfully came the worst, worst crimes against humanity in the history, in the history of humanity. And then we have the opposite philosophy. Sadly, it's uh, been practiced by many religious people throughout the ages and today by the Islamists. And they say, as long as you have I am the Lord your God murder as much as you want. If it's coming from Allah or from the Lord, you're good to go. And it's very powerful that the Jewish Ten Commandments say the two go together. If you get rid of God, if you get rid of a basis of morality that's transcendent, if you get rid of the idea of Yirat Shamayim, fear of heaven, the human mind could rationalize the worst of the worst of the worst. And conversely, there's no such a thing as divorcing I am your God from thou shalt not murder. The first and most important thing God wants is that we treat each other with dignity and with respect.
0: Yes. And I think that there'd be many examples of that. There are different religions over the, you know, over the centuries that in some form or another have, have preached, I'm the Lord your God, but not the other. I mean, it's not, not limited, obviously, to, they, they yeah. will find these kind of exceptions across history, uh, but, th- but that unity and the integration of the two. is is
1: critical. It's critical. I always, I tell my students, you know, they sometimes look, they read the Hebrew Bible, and they say there's all these death penalties. I say, listen, we all know that there's no way of understanding the Hebrew Bible without Torah Peh. There's not a single verse that's not cryptic. And we know the famous mission of the Sanhedrin, where some of the greatest Talmudic sages, who spoke a lot about the death penalty, said, You know, if I would be in the Sanhedrin, yeah, somebody would have been killed maybe once in 70 years. Or, if Shimon Ben Gamliel said, nobody would ever get the death penalty. In other words, there was such a sensitivity, sensitivity to life that uh, p- penetrated the entire philosophy of Judaism throughout and throughout, because we all understood that the most essential message of Judaism is that if God is real, it means life has absolute value. A person's dignity is non-negotiable. A Jew and a non-Jew, every person carved in the image of God, no matter your color, race, or ethnic group.
0: And and I think what's so important here is this concept of an integrated worldview. In other words, uh, w- without compartmentalizing and saying, "Well, there's a part which is religious, there's a part which is ethical," it is the integration of the two which is so important. And that it goes to the heart of the concept of uh, of integrity. I mean, I think the word integrity comes from things which are integrated and and which are whole. And I think this is such an important part of our preparation for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It's not that. As we prepare for these days well we 've got to think about our relationship with God, and then separately, we must think about a relationship with the people around us They, they, they are integrated because there 's the sense the uh, you know as you were saying about the image of God in every person it's it 's seeing that hashems is present in human beings, that God created us in his yeah. image, and so therefore respect for one 's fellow person is actually respect for hashem and 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 the other way around so it 's looking at at, you know, it's, it's like this broad vision of life that nothing is outside of our mission in this world.
1: It uh, couldn't be said better, Chief Rabbi. And I would just add, and I think this also teaches us, that there is something to learn from every person. There is something within each and every human being that I meet that can inspire me. Because each and every person is a unique imprint of the divine in this world. So if I find a person boring or irrelevant, or there's nothing I can learn from you. It's not about the other person. It means that I myself have lost touch with my inner divine core. Because if I would be in touch with my divine core, I would find something unique and special literally in every person. There is no life story of any human being, who ever lived and whoever will live, or who's living now, that is not fascinating, and in many ways revolutionary, and can teach us, each and every one of us, a tremendous amount and, and add to the vocabulary of the human race and to the growth of the human race. You know, each and every one of us is, is literally an indispensable note in the cosmic divine symphony. You know, Chief Rabbi, I read something the other day and it was very inspiring to me because nature doesn't lie. You know, from nature you learn about the world, the pristine world, the innocent world. And, you know, people ask always, it's, it's an old question, uh, before, even before Mark Twain, the, the secret of, of Jewish survival, you know, another Rosh Hashanah, 5 7, It's been a lot of Rosh Hashanahs, it's, 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 it's a unique record. And in Jewish history we can go back to every single person, back to Adam. You know, we have the chronology of generations, literally, Generation to generation, back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. So that's incredible. And people always ask, what's the secret? So sometimes you have to look at nature. Look at the oldest trees that are alive. And you can go to California, and you'll find there trees that are close to 4,000 years. These trees, they call them Mesushalach trees. Because like Mesushalach, they just live and live. But even longer than Mesushalach. But it's interesting, they have a name for one of the trees, Mesushelach. But you have their trees that are 3,000 years old, 4,000 years old, 5,000 years old, which means they were around before Abraham. They were around at Noah's times. Incredible. And one of these known category uh, groups of trees are known as the Sequoia trees. Sequoia. They're redwoods. So I was reading about the scientists, the botanists, searching... How they survive for 3,000 years? How do trees survive this way? With tsunamis, with thunderstorms, with all types of uh, disruptions in nature. How did they weather all these storms? So the botanists thought that the roots must be perhaps hundreds of feet deep in the ground and therefore nothing can destroy the tree. They were astounded to discover that many of these sequoia trees The depth was maybe five feet, which is minimal. And they couldn't understand what's the secret. And then they realized the depth of the roots may be only five feet. But the width of the roots, some of these trees, the roots expanded in width, a hundred feet or more. But here is the secret. And I found this incredibly inspiring. You know what? As they spread out, they interlock with roots of other sequoia trees. So you can have dozens or hundreds of sequoia trees that in the depth of the roots, the roots become intertwined, interconnected, integrated, and interlocked with each other. And then, no storm in the world can destroy them. If you want to understand the secret of human sequoia trees, which are the Jewish people, the nation of eternity, this is it. That's why I say it's essential to survival. Some of us are deeper, some of us are more shallow. That's fine. But our roots must meet and interlock with each other. Not lose our personalities. Every tree has its unique personality. But in our root level, we have to be so interlocked and then no storm in the world can obliterate us.
0: Yeah, that's such a beautiful idea. And such a beautiful analogy for what we're talking about, yeah. And it's it's really about this integration because the integration leads to to support. And then maybe there's there's one other uh, dimension here. We, I mean, it's it's clearly the support for one another is so important. I mean, we we are social beings, so we we, we influence one another. And I think if we if we um, think about that analogy of the roots that you're talking about, and we think you know like what we've been through over these months. Where there's really been the sense of, um, you know, there's really been the sense that for a long time our minyanim didn't function, and we, we lost that sense of community. We tried to replace it with the with Zoom and with all these kinds of interactions, and 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 that has been also a way of connecting, but it's not the same. And you know, thank God our minyanim just started again in Rosh Chodesh Elul, but we're you know closed for for a long time in order to to save lives but that the sense of human connection and the sense that on the one hand, davening and prayer is a very personal interaction with Hashem, like like reflected in the halacha that we learn from Chana, that law that we, we whisper to God because there's nothing more intimate than a whisper that shows the intimacy and the close connection. But on the other hand, prayer is very communal. So we, we are drawing from each other. It's not this solitary, selfish, isolated experience, it is an experience which is communal, which is sharing, which is broadening, and and it's, you know, in a certain sense, davening in a minion and being connected to a community is like those big trees that you were talking about and the interconnected roots. And and I think that's also probably a very important dimension of preparation for Rosh Hashanah, the the idea of, of community, that when we appear before Hashem in judgment, we don't want to go there alone and say to Hashem, "Here we are on our own." We want to, we want to, we want to, we want to go as as part of a community and and rely on the merit of the community, both who we are as as well as the generations that that have come before us.
1: Absolutely, and I think perhaps you know all these months and the continuous uncertainty with uh, the coronavirus maybe challenges us also to look at the state of our community, in our own homes. And what I mean is our marriages. The unity of the Jewish people begins with strong marriages. Because, let's face it, husbands and wives are not always the same, if ever. We are very different. We have different personalities, often different tastes, different idiosyncrasies. And our generation is a generation that has seen many a marriage struggling And I think this opportunity, when many of us are home, you know, I know myself, I've been now home for six months. I haven't left for a single Shabbos. And uh, I never, (laughs) for good or for bad, I did not have that for many years. I think it's really an invitation by the Creator of the world for each of us to try to smooth out differences and deal with the contention, conscious and subconscious, between us and our spouses our immediate family, of course, our children, ourselves. So community begins, you know, right here in a very domestic place. Like, take the time, each of us, spend with your spouse, talk about stuff that you maybe did not have time to talk about, take walks, deal with the issues that have come up over the years, you know, the lack of trust, the disappointment, the alienation. Sometimes you may need help from from another person. Get that help. But it's, it's such a special opportunity now to consolidate the fabric of the family in terms of marriages, in terms of our own children, in terms of our immediate family. Because that's really what allows for healthy communities and for healthy humanity is a healthy family. The family is the core where all good things
0: happen. I think that is so important because that's part of what I, what I wanted to to discuss with you today, Rabbi Jacobson, is uh, like looking back at all of these months. You know the kinds of things we need to take with us, because look, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the world, and there's no vaccine, and you know, there's different places have second waves, and uh, you know, so it's nobody knows what next month and the month after is going to bring, and that itself is part of a process of Uh, humility and trust in in Hashem but it's also part of let's say learning from what we've been through so that this experience uh, is not something that just you know comes and goes but that we learn something from it and but but at the same time never saying and I think this is such an important point for for all of us to think about we never say this is why Hashem brought it you know we, we, we don't know how Hashem works and what what he does, but now that we 're in the situation, we have to ask ourselves well what what can we learn from it and you know before going down that track, maybe we can just explore a little bit more about family because I want to come back to some of the other sense of the lessons of of what we 've been through, uh, kind of lessons from lockdown what you know what we 've been through, but I think in in context of family. You know, to to think of you know in practical terms, because this is also an important part of Rosh Hashanah. Sometimes people think I'm preparing for for Day of Judgment. I have to you know think about repentance. Well, let me let me look through my list of mitzvahs that I have done or haven't done. Let me. But but actually, who we are at home as a spouse, as a parent, as a child, as a sibling, that, that is an important defining identity of who we are. So I think what, what's important, you know, is, is to explore practically what that means, how, how, how we can do that better. And I, I was just thinking, you know, maybe one idea to kickstart our discussion on this is the Shabbos candles, because we know that Shabbos candles uh, were instituted by our sages as, for, to bring Shalom Bayis, to bring Shalom peace by. in the world. And, and, and the reason they're given is, you know, that if you, if the home's shrouded in darkness and people will be stumbling over things, that'll lead to fights. But I was thinking that, that maybe there's a deeper dimension of what, of what that, of what our sages are teaching. And that is that in order for there to be peace at home, we need to see one another. And seeing one another is not just about the physical. It's about, it's about knowing where that person is coming from and seeing and empathizing. It's empathy. You know, empathy is, is so important because it's, it's the beginning and the start of, of any relationship. I have to see your struggles, where you're coming from. And only if I have real empathy with you as my spouse or my children or my parent, then, you know, can the relationship start to, to develop.
1: Right. A hundred. Yeah, beautiful, beautifully said, Chief Rabbi. And I would just add, if I may, there's a fascinating halakha, fascinating law in Tractate Shabbos, uh, page 23 in the Rambam Hilchis Hanukkah. In the olden days, sometimes you had Jews who were very poor and they could only afford one candle. So the Talmud asks this fascinating question. It's Hanukkah and it's Friday and I only have money to buy one candle. Do I use that candle? to give to my wife to light Shabbat candles, or do I use that candle to light my Hanukkah menorah? It's the first night of Hanukkah, any night of Hanukkah. So what would we naturally think? We would think, you know, Shabbos candles is every week, but Hanukkah candles is so special. But the Jewish law is no, that Shabbos candles trumps Hanukkah candles, and that candle I use for Shabbat. And the Talmud says, and the Rambam says, because shalom bias, peace in the home, transcends all else. And the fascinating thing is that Hanukkah really represents the national victory of the Jewish people, the victory of the Maccabees over the Syrian Greeks. Remember, if Hanukkah miracle would have not happened, there would be no Judaism any longer. The Shabbos candle just represents, you know, having a nice meal, a nice atmosphere in the house, good ambiance, some good gefilte fish, some delicious chicken soup. I mean, come on, it's just having a nice romantic festive Shabbat dinner with, with, you know, Abyssal cholin. Well, Friday night is not cholin, but my house, they eat Chalun Friday night. Like, that can't defeat Hanukkah. But in the Jewish imagination, even the greatest, most powerful wars on the front lines, protecting our land and protecting our people, ultimately comes second to the powerful inner harmony in the home. Because when marriages are healthy, stable, positive, loving, moral, and inspirational, and meaningful, then a nation has an inner core. The children grow up in a healthy atmosphere with good values, and our continuity is assured. So as you say, the Shabbos candles represent something very, very powerful in Jewish history.
0: Yeah. And, and and it touches on, you know, it's it's part of what you're saying is that uh, that if if we now to stop and think about community the, the starting point of any discussion around community is 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 family and and turning that into actuality and and really living that because I think that goes back to this issue of integrity that we've been talking about who is a person outside and who are they inside yeah. their own home yeah. And, yeah. and and it needs to be the same person there needs to be that sense of of right. continuity, toche k'baro, as the Talmud says, you know, inside the
1: like, sense of, yeah, there's an old Hasidic, there's an old Hasidic insight, the Gemara says in Pesachim, there's an interesting halacha, ain't kiddush, we can only make kiddush, on Shabbos, in the place where we eat the meal, so for example, if you make kiddush in shul, and you have a little schnapps, or a little wine, and you say, a and then you go home to wash, you have to do Kiddush again, because Kiddush has to be in the place of the meal, unless we start the meal where we made the Kiddush. So there's a beautiful, uh, I guess, spiritual interpretation. And that is, some people think that there's two worlds. There's the world of Kiddush. Kiddush means, of course, sanctification. And then there's the world of the meal, the world of feasting and parting. In Judaism, kiddush The only Kiddushah, the only sanctity that we really cherish is the Kiddushah, the Kiddush, that permeates our feasting and our eating and our family life and our home and our business. People who in shul close their eyes and scream, Nakdishach or Nakadish, and they're very holy. But in the office I become like a shark or I come home and I insult my wife or my children and I lose it and my temper goes crazy. Even though in shul I am Mr. Holy Hero, Judaism doesn't believe in that. Kiddush is one that permeates the home, it permeates the meal, it permeates your body, as you say, integration,
0: holistic. Yes, and I think, actually, you know where, where, where this is expressed so powerfully, is if we think of the book of, of uh, Beresha, Genesis, which is the foundations of the Jewish people and the foundations of the history of all of humanity, and actually, what, what is the story in, in, the, in the book of Genesis? It's the story of families. You are thinking we're going to read this, uh, you know, this chronicle of the history of humanity and how the world has right. changed. And what yep. is it? You know, Avram and Sarah they got married and they couldn't have a child, and then they were able to have a child. And this one fought, and then you know, Yitzchak yep. and Rivka and how they met and the shidduch and was she right. the right shidduch and was she kind? Yep. And then they had twins and the twins were fighting. So the whole. It's a story of, of families, and really, exactly.
1: And one more point: if you read the book of Genesis, yeah, and if you read the book of Genesis, there's a progression, and it's not a simple one of how siblings treat each other. In the first portion, there's homicide. You know, Cain murders Abel. In the next portion, right, one of the boys, one of the brothers, is cursed, and then as you go on, Ishmael is expelled from the home. And then Yaakov and Esau, Yaakov has to run away because Esau wants to kill him. And then Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. So first it starts with murder, then it goes to a curse, then it goes to expulsion, then it goes to running away, and then at the end they reconcile but they part ways, and then Joseph almost gets killed by his brothers, but at the end of Genesis the brothers come back together. The brothers come back together. So from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Genesis, you have really the, the promise that humans, we can be better. We don't have to kill each other, expel each other, curse each other, hate each other. We have to be able to forgive each other. And then when you come to Exodus, you have Moses and Aaron, Moshe and Aaron working together as a team without jealousy. Joseph and his brothers made up, but he was the prime minister and they were in the Kailal, you know, learning in Gaishin, learning Gemara and keeping up the Jewish tradition of learning. In the next portion you have Moshe and Aaron who really, really come together and are working together as God's representatives to emancipate their people. And only then can the Torah be given. We cannot receive the Torah as long as we really do not learn how to forgive, how to love. How to be able to really be here for each other, despite our egos, despite our insecurities, despite our traumas, and despite our toxic thoughts that, you know, like to rip us apart.
0: I think what's what's coming through so clearly in this conversation is that as we're preparing for Rosh Hashanah, it's about working on unity, which is on a a national communal level. It's about working at unity at at a family level. All of that requires us to overcome our own narrowness and limitations, realizing there's an integrated approach and connection connection to Hashem. But as we as we approach Rosh Hashanah, I think maybe um, you know, what else can we learn from what we've been through now? In a certain sense, the world has been tilted off its axis. It's been we've been through unprecedented times. Everyone knows how traumatic that has been and yet there have been a lot of insights and wisdom. And and I kind of think that Rosh Hashanah has it's a feeling like the timing feels right. I mean, it's a funny thing to say because of course the timing is always right, but it, it feels, you know, in, in the sense we've been through all of this and now Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is a time of introspection. So how do we improve? And, and you were saying one area is like family, you know, what, what Rabbi Jacobson has, has come across to you as a sense of something that we can learn from these traumatic experiences that we've been through, and uplifting and take it with us so we can use it to prepare for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as we head towards the new year.
1: Yeah. I think really, you know, we call Rosh Hashanah the time of Cheshbon Hanefesh, the time of Elul and Rosh Hashanah, the time when we, what we call reckoning of the soul. This is the beautiful expression in Judaism. Once a year you got to do a reckoning of the soul. But really, what happened, you know, since March, February, March, since after Purim was really the whole world began a reckoning of the soul. With movie theaters closed, sports stadiums closed, malls, bars, restaurants, schools, all types of religious institutions, people were challenged and compelled to do a reckoning of the soul, both individually, each one of us individually, and collectively, collectively as nations, as groups, but also as part of human civilization. You know, I don't know when was the last time that 7.7 billion people sitting down to eat dinner are talking about the same things. Literally the concerns of people in Baghdad and Tehran and Kabul was similar to the concern of people in Sydney and Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Johannesburg and New York and Los Angeles. That's unprecedented that a little tiny uh, coronavirus the size of 125 nanometers, you can take a 100 million uh, viral particles of coronavirus and fit it on a pinhead. And one of those changed the whole world. So it really, as you said, it humbles us all. It made us all very vulnerable. And I think one of perhaps the greatest opportunities here of this crisis, because every crisis must become a catalyst for opportunity, If not, we waste a very precious potential in life. And that is really to explore life, I would say, beyond the masks. We're all wearing masks. That's how we go out. Those of us who go out, you gotta go out with a mask. But what about life beyond the masks? You know, before the coronavirus, we weren't wearing masks. But were we not wearing masks? Many of us were wearing masks. Because it's much easier to wear masks in life. Eclipse my vulnerability. Eclipse my weaknesses. Show a macho front where everything is wonderful and perfect. And I think with putting on the masks, maybe history is telling us, identify your masks and can you go beneath the mask? And that's what I have been tried. I I, I try to do this in my life and I would encourage my friends and my brothers and sisters to do this. Identify those parts in your life that were the most scary, the most vulnerable, the most difficult, those inner, inner forces, maybe subconsciously, where I got the most love or where I didn't get the love that I needed. And how many responses in my life are coming from that place? Explore it and have the courage to realize that now we were given an opportunity to extricate the toxicity the demons the skeletons the pettiness the traumas the insecurities and the deep fears that we may experience in a very deep fashion and usually when the world is running in its normal fashion we're stressed out we're overwhelmed we're flying here we're coming in everybody is busy but now when God says spend time with yourself spend time with your loved ones I think It's a real opportunity for rebirth, for transformation. Not just for growth in one way or another way, which is all excellent, but really the reckoning of my entire trajectory of my destiny. Seeing who I am as a person. Asking questions that I maybe was uncomfortable asking. Who am I as a father? What is my relationship with my children? What is their relationship with me? What is my spouse's relationship with me? What is my own intimate relationship with God? What are my deepest fears? What do I run away from most? What are my deepest dreams and desires? What are things that I'm always avoiding? What are those thoughts that don't stop eating up on my happiness and my inner serenity? Each of them can be seen as a chauffeur, as a spiritual alarm clock to wake us up to a new heartbeat and a new beginning.
0: I think that um, it's so it's so beautiful what you what what you're sharing. Um, it's, it's this idea of making peace with with vulnerability, because you know at at the heart and in the soul and the essence of what it means to be human is um is to be truly vulnerable and 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 it's hard we we're we all the time looking to find ways to protect ourselves against vulnerability i mean it's yeah. it's a natural yeah. it's a yeah. natural human thing because yeah. say say um so for example you know a human being is 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 vulnerable because we don't have shelter you know animals have got naturally they've got shelter but we have to then go build a house so if there's vulnerability to the elements, we build a house. If there's vulnerability to hunger, right. we find food. And, and we're constantly on a search for life to, to end our vulnerability and, and have the sense, well, maybe it's within our grasp to do that. And then comes along a crisis like this, and we realize that with all the technological might of 21st century civilization, we, we are still vulnerable. And, and, and really – And we, how. Yeah, and God, how. <laughs> And, and how? And how? And then, and then we we realize we're in God's hands, and then it's really the journey of well, can we live with that vulnerability? But I think what you're saying is it's not just the philosophical vulnerability of of the fact that we're in Hashem's hands and trusting that Hashem is looking after us, because I think there's that element. Vulnerability and trust are two sides of the same coin, but it's also a personal thing of of where. Where are the weaknesses? Where where are the things that we can work on? So there's like this very deep concept of the vulnerability, which I think is what you're talking about, this idea of how we can face our deepest fears. And I think that's, that's part of the issue of trust, which in a certain sense is the paradox of Rosh Hashanah, because Rosh Hashanah, on the one hand, is the time that we confront our vulnerability, Who's going to live and who will die? You know, I mean, who, who doesn't tremble when, when the ark is open at that, at that moment? And, and yet it's a yontif. And yet it's a day of celebration. It's a day where, where, where we, because we, we are saying we're, we're in Hashem's hands. And, and and in a way, we, we're saying we trust that Hashem is going to look after us. That doesn't mean that things are going to turn out the way that we want, but we know that he loves us. And at the same time, we confront our own personal lack and vulnerability to become better people. So it's like a day of the kingship of God and yet the day of our own repentance. So we're dealing with our weaknesses, but we also are saying ultimately we're in Hashem's hands. So there's this, you know, it's like the paradox of the human being. Some, we're always looking for simple answers, aren't we, as human beings? But but somehow it's this thing of human power that God has given us and human vulnerability at the same time. It's, it's, it's such a paradox right. to live with. it.
1: A paradox indeed, but I think a paradox that ultimately empowers us, because when we run away from our vulnerability, we're running away from our truest selves. Your ultimate Messiah, your, your ultimate light, your deepest light, always lay in the spots that are most vulnerable. And it's not easy to find that. We always think, my great light will be found elsewhere. No, no. My greatest light will be found over there. Or as the Medrash says, Matsasi David Avdi, Bizdaim. God says, I found, I discovered my David, my, my, my anointed king. Where? In Sadaim. In Sadaim? Yes, because Light's daughter fathered the nation of Moab, which was ultimately the nation from where Ruth came. She was the great grandmother of King David and the great grandmother, therefore, of, of Mashiach. And the message, of course, is that sometimes you find your most revolutionary power your power to change the world to bring redemption to the world in Sadaim, in those places that seem the most dangerous and toxic and I, I put a crust over it i don't want to go back there don't don't take me back there but it's over there that you will find your your true vocation your calling your your deepest potential because it's in the deepest darkness where ultimately the deepest light lay we only have to transform it we have to redirect it harness it now this is not easy it's 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 nice talk but psychologically this is very deep work can i really go to my deepest place of darkness but if i can with courage and with faith not with the spear i will find over there my most powerful treasures my deepest power any one of you knows that anyone who has achieved real greatness in life and an impact that really touches people, it's only, usually I should say, when they had the courage to touch that part in them, that is very easy to ignore because it's painful. I would also add one thing, you know, you spoke about Hashem judging us on Rosh Hashanah, how can that be a yom tif? you know, who's going to live, who's going to die, and I think this is also very important to understanding Rosh Hashanah, the way I see it, and that is, You know, today, we don't like the word judging. (laughs) Stop judging me. Don't judge. Don't judge. Don't judge. There were Jews who told me, Rosh Hashanah is called a day of judgment, and it drives them crazy. Living in a therapy age, and an age of hyper-individuality, don't judge me. I judge myself. Maybe I'll allow my therapist to judge me, and even then, I'm paying him money, so he'll judge me the way I want him to judge me. So how do we understand this day of judgment? But I would uh, venture to say that the truth is we want to be judged. Every one of us wants to be judged. But I want to be judged by somebody who loves me infinitely and who knows me infinitely. I don't want somebody who just watched a video of me to judge me because they don't know anything about me. I want somebody who knows everything about me and someone who loves me And cares for me in the deepest way. When such a person judges you, we love to be judged. Who doesn't want to, who doesn't want to be analyzed and their story brought to the fore so that they could really look at the future trajectory of their life? It's one of the most healthy, vibrant, life-affirming things to be judged when the judgment is done from a place of deep, caring empathy and love and somebody who knows me. The judgment on Rosh Hashanah is not done by some person who couldn't care less about me. The judgment on Rosh Hashanah is done by the one who birthed me, who conceived me in infinite love, who wants my deepest happiness and success and prospering in this world and the next world. Someone who loves me, as the Baal Shem said, Hashem loves every Jew more than parents love an only child who was born at a time when the situation seemed hopeless, even that love doesn't come close to the love of Hashem to every Jew. The Zohar says in Shmos, Rabbi Yehuda says, Rabbi Yehuda, one of the greatest sages, if we would, if a person would know how much Hashem loves them, you would run after Hashem faster than a lioness runs after her prey. When you realize that it's Hashem judging you with the deepest Love and tenderness. Knowing everything about me. My struggles, my demons, my challenges, my trauma, my childhood, my difficulties psychologically, emotionally, socially, mentally, spiritually. He knows everything. He's not looking at it superficially. Oh, you came to Shul, you didn't come to Shul, you did this mitzvah, you did this mitzvah, you're going to burn in purgatory, you're going to go to paradise, here's a cotton candy, here's a punishment. Somebody who knows me in a way that I will never even know myself. And he says, "I'm judging you, and I'm going to give you a year that is best for your soul to be able to achieve your ultimate purpose." Yes, it's very awesome. It's very intense, but there's also an inner serenity there.
0: I think that it's so beautiful because, in a certain way, it brings together everything we're discussing, and I think it's a it's it's, it's a good moment to 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 wrap up our, our conversation, which I've so enjoyed because I think. What comes out of what you're sharing now is is this real sense of courage that is required. And, um, you know, as as, as we head towards Rosh Hashanah, you know, part of our conversation today has been the importance of Jewish unity, the importance of family, uh, but now also the importance of honesty and, and accepting our vulnerability and going into Rosh Hashanah and saying, let's honestly look at ourselves. And we have nothing to be afraid of because we are in the loving embrace of Hashem and He loves us. And he has faith in us. So sometimes we talk about having faith in Hashem, but, but we, he has faith in us. And we also have to believe in ourselves. So that courage comes from self-belief. That courage comes from knowing that Hashem loves us. And that gives us the courage to, to face our vulnerabilities, to face our shortcomings, and, and, and to learn from them and to really go into this with looking forward. You know, that, that Rosh Hashanah is a gift. Like you were saying, isn't it wonderful to be, to be judged? It's a catalyst. Because, look, you know, you, uh, what I found so interesting, Rabbi Jacobs, and you were saying the whole world has been through this chesh bon this accounting of the soul, the spiritual accounting to understand. But actually, we have that gift every year with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Like Hashem doesn't allow one year to run into the next to the next. In, in a certain sense, the last few months have been the ideal preparation for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But if we were to think about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in this way, then every year we have this catalyzing opportunity which is this combination of honesty and love vulnerability and trust this uh, this 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 real engagement and and a true embrace of others and an embrace of ourselves and it all yeah. comes together in such a beautiful way so i think in a certain sense as you've been talking now thinking that it it brings together everything we've been discussing and and sort of you know sets the stage as as we enter into the last less
1: than two weeks to Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. There was a uh, there was a very famous master known as Rebarach of Kosov. He wrote a famous book called Yisod Voda, and he says something magnificent. The prophet says, Yirmiyah says, God said during the time of the destruction, Oysi Azavu Shamaru. So the Talmud says, Halavai, Hashem says, Halavai, I wish Jews would have abandoned me and kept my Torah. So everybody asks, what does that mean? Hashem says, I wish you would have just forgotten me, but just kept my Torah. So he says a beautiful interpretation. He says, one of the most difficult aspects in philosophy and in Jewish philosophy is how do you reconcile God's future knowledge and free choice? If Hashem knows what I'm going to do tomorrow, then do I have free choice? Because if I really have free choice, then it means he doesn't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. And if he does know what I'm going to do tomorrow, then I'm forced to do it. This is one of the big quandaries of ancient philosophy. The Rambam devotes a section in Truva to it and many, many other commentators and philosophers throughout the ages. And he says, you know, it's really a very difficult paradox. If God knows the future, can we really have autonomy? And he says some people... Simply their mathematical minds, if they're not used to quantum mechanics, can't contain paradox. So they have to make a choice. Do I believe that God knows everything? Or do I believe that humans have choices and responsibilities? He says that's what God is saying. Halavai, oisi ozavu shamarov. You have to make a choice between believing in me or me believing in you. I want you to choose the latter. God says, I'll be all right. Don't worry. So you're not sure how I know, what I know, do I know. But never ever stop thinking that I stopped believing in you, in your ability to confront everything you have to confront and turn it into a springboard for extraordinary rebirth and renewal.
0: Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for your time. It's such a beautiful note to, to end our discussion. Thank you, Talking to you for, for, you know, for hours on end.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Chief Rabbi, and thank you to all of you. Thank you for this great opportunity, and I want to bless you, the Chief Rabbi, and your whole community, the whole South, South, South African Jewish community, with a Shanatovame. All of you have the most awesome and healthy and beautiful and amazing year and happiness and prosperity and Nachas among all of our brothers and sisters and among the whole world, Shana Tova and Hashanah Geulah Yeshua. Thank you.
0: Amen, amen. And, and go forward. We can all go forward with, with this knowledge is that we have it within us, whatever we need, whatever the year ahead lies. What, what lies ahead in the year, we don't know. Hashem knows. But one thing is, as we go ahead towards that new year, we must believe in ourselves as we've just been talking now because Hashem yeah. believes in us and we have yeah. everything in us to go forward into the new year, to grow and mm-hmm. to make such a if difference. You'll, to... If you'll allow
1: me, I'll conclude with an anecdote. Do we have time for yeah. an anecdote?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Somebody sent it That's to me. It was we, a great one. We could one. keep talking for hours, Rabbi Jacobson. I'm so loving our discussion. Every <laughs> time we threaten to end, we, we continue, which is also good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's quite a Jewish thing to do. As, as long as we don't do it at sermons in synagogue, it's fine. As long as it's Zoom, it's voluntary. If somebody is bored of the rabbi's sermons, you could just leave. But I know that you're going to stay for the anecdote. So they say that there was a great opera singer who did an unbelievable rendition of Psalm 23. Mizmer Ladovid, Hashem Roi echser. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It was just magnificent. The tune and the lyrics. And when he concluded, he got a standing ovation of a few minutes. People were just flabbergasted by the talent. And then an old Baba, a Jewish grandmother, gets up and says, can I do my rendition of Psalm 23? And he says, of course, and she begins her rendition. You'll forgive me, she couldn't carry a tune. She didn't have the words straight, but her neshama, her neshama was there. And everybody started to cry as she was saying this chapter of Tehillim 23, Hashem Rai. And at the end, he turns to her and he says, I don't understand this. I did a beautiful, impeccable job. Nobody shed a tear. They just clapped. You, you broke every rule of singing, of communication, and yet everybody is crying. Why? So she looks at him and she says, because you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. So when we get to know the shepherd, when you have a personal relationship with the shepherd, everything changes.
0: Thank you. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Chief
1: Rabbi Shanatova.
0: Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson. And God's blessings for health and healing to the entire world. Amen. Thank you so much for your time. What a privilege. I've so enjoyed it. Could continue chatting. Thank you. And uh, God bless. Thank you, everyone, for joining. This class is brought to you by yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyesheba.net slash donate.